theme is the inspired word of God, and this evening, how the New Testament scriptures were compiled. Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters. It's the year AD 367, not really, but let's imagine that it were, um, and a bishop called Athanasius, who was Bishop of Alexandria, sat down to write a letter, and he'd written 39 of these letters before, so he was fairly confident with writing it, but it was an important letter, because it was going to tell everybody what date Easter was going to be that year, and that was something that was important for people to know. And it was going to be read out in front of his congregation. So he sat down and he wrote this letter, and he decided that what he was going to put in to this letter, as well as the date of Easter, was a list of the books of the Bible. Old Testament, Genesis through to Malachi, and New Testament. The 27 books of the New Testament were written and detailed out by Athanasius in 367. And this is the first reference that we have, the very earliest reference that there is, to all 27 books of the New Testament being put together as a canon, a complete group, a rule, the set of books that were for the early church. And that's not really that interesting for us, except for to say that it has given ammunition to a lot of people to say that the canon of the New Testament was not set for many hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. So AD 367 were about 330 years or so after the death of Christ. And by this point, this is the earliest point we have for a complete written down list. And people point to that and say, well it took that length of time for the church to agree and decide upon the books that were going to be in the New Testament. And what we're going to see tonight is that that is rubbish. That isn't the case at all. That from the very earliest part, from 10, 20 years after the death of Christ, the New Testament was being written and certified and authenticated as the books by which God was going to found his ecclesia. We don't need to concern ourselves with what misguided critics of the Bible infer from the histories of an apostate and false religion. That's not what we're going to think about this evening. We are going to spend time looking at the New Testament and seeing how it shows us how it was formed and put together. But it's important to recognise that there are these things about, because the Bible has been under attack for, well, since it was written, really. We have uh, records of uh, a chap called Marcion in about AD 150 or so, who set about to mutilate the New Testament. He didn't like a lot of the things that were written in the New Testament, particularly he didn't like the parts of the New Testament that referred to the Old Testament. And so he just chopped them out. He removed as much of them as he could, and he presented his work as a corrected New Testament. A hundred years after the death of Christ, he was doing this. It's not a new thing that the Bible is under attack, but it's important for us to recognise that it is. 
And what we need to do is to confirm our faith in what we have as the New Testament. To recognise that it really is the Word of God. And to do that, of course, we're going to start in Genesis 14. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 14. Because in Genesis chapter 14, we are introduced to a man who is going to be an incredibly important and yet very little mentioned man. Genesis chapter 14 and in verse 18, it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. There's his introduction. Melchizedek, king of Salem. And it's the regular introduction for kings. If you go back to verse 1 of Genesis chapter 14, we're told about Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laoma, king of Elam. Their name and then the place they were the king of. And it's the same with Melchizedek. And we could just read over that. But now come with me to Hebrews in chapter 7. Because Hebrews chapter 7 teaches us something very important about the way the Bible is put together. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us that for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And so the inspired writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us, using nothing but the order in which Melchizedek is introduced, as first Melchizedek and then king of peace, that actually there's a principle involved here, that there is something more important than just introducing a man. Because he was king of righteousness and then king of peace. And we can go to other parts of the scripture to show that that is a scriptural principle. That there must be righteousness before there is peace. But isn't it incredible, brothers and sisters, that 2,000 years before the letter to the Hebrews was written, God had placed into his word, through the means of saying Melchizedek, king of Salem, rather than the king of Salem whose name was Melchizedek, a principle for people to discover. This is the care with which God has crafted his word. This is the way that we must approach the word of God. It's not just the words that are used, brothers and sisters, but the order of the words and the number of the words. And why would we think that that might apply to the Old Testament, but not necessarily to the New Testament? We wouldn't, would we? We wouldn't make that assumption. We wouldn't have that thought. 
God has crafted his word, designed it and formed it just as beautifully as he has designed anything that we see in nature. And we have to recognise that, brothers and sisters. And the New Testament is going to show us how that was done. Just come to Ephesians in chapter 2. Let's start here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And we know the picture, brothers and sisters, don't we, of the ecclesia as a building, of living stones as each other forming a part of that building which grows up that it might give glory to God. And the foundation of that building, says verse 20, is the apostles and the prophets. And the prophets there, brothers and sisters, isn't referring to the Old Testament. The prophets there is referring to a group of believers in the early church, in the early ecclesia, in the first century, who were set out by God to be his prophets. Just look at verse 5 of chapter 3, which tells us that, it doesn't really matter what the context is, but which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto us, his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. So in chapter 3 and verse 5, it is definitely talking about a group of people who were called prophets in the new first century ecclesia. Because this was revealed to that group of people. And so what we have is a picture of God building a habitation for himself, doing that through the medium of his word and his revelation. Delivered by the apostles and the prophets. Just come over to Second of Peter chapter three, and we'll see the same thing. Second of Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. So we have these same two groups of people then, the apostles and the prophets, who were to be the foundation of the early Ecclesia. They were members of the early Ecclesias who were endowed with the Spirit to reveal the Word and the will of God and His Son. And whilst the apostles, it seems, went off, they carried on moving, they kept preaching, they kept moving on. 
the prophets would then remain behind. Each ecclesia having access then to the spoken word of God. Let's come back to 1st of Corinthians in chapter 12. First of Corinthians chapter 12 at the end of the chapter from verse 28. Where we are told that God hath set some in the ecclesia, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets. Verse 30 says, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covers covered earnestly the best gifts. It's interesting, with the spirit gifts there was a hierarchy. First the apostles, and then prophets. Because through the means of those spirit-guided members of the early ecclesia, <coughs> the ecclesia was to be set up. And we sometimes minimize this, this, this role of the prophets, but it was vitally important, wasn't it? If God was going to set up the ecclesia on the basis of his word, just as he had with Israel in the Old Testament, there needed to be groups of people who would speak his word, who would be placed throughout the ecclesias to reveal the word of God. Chapter 14 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians says, Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. There was a need for prophets within the early ecclesia to found and to establish this ecclesia. And it's interesting, we get a hint of that from Christ himself. Just come to Matthew in chapter 16. It's exactly the same process in, in, a, in a slightly miniaturized form. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus has come to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, and some Elijah, or the prophets. And Jesus says in verse 15, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, you speak in the Spirit, says Jesus, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. The foundation <coughs> of the ecclesia was in the revealed words of the Father. And that foundation was the apostles and the prophets. We see a similar thing in Acts chapter 20. I'm sorry, we are jumping around a lot. We are going to jump around a lot to try and piece this story together. Acts chapter 20 and verse 23. We get a picture of the work 
of these men. The Apostle Paul, um, verse 17, tells us, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and called the elders of the Ecclesia. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, and he gives them this, this speech, encouraging them and teaching them of the, the, the false doctrine, the, the false practice that was going to creep in. But he says in verse 22, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. And there is the work of the prophets in the New Testament. Paul was going from place to place, from city to city, from ecclesia to ecclesia, and everywhere he went, there was a prophet saying, Bombs and afflictions are waiting for you when you get to Jerusalem. These prophets were put within ecclesias to speak the word of God. There's a fascinating Old Testament model for this. Just come back to 2nd of Kings and chapter 2. In 2nd of Kings in chapter 2 and verse 1, we are told it came to pass when Yahweh would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for Yahweh hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As Yahweh liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that Yahweh will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it, hold you your peace. And then they move on. Uh, and in verse 5, the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho, came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that Yahweh will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold you your peace. So Elisha went with Elijah. And where he went, there was a group of the sons of the prophets who were telling him, This is going to happen. This is going to happen today. And it's just the same in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. Wherever he goes, there is a prophet saying, be bad for you in Jerusalem. And we can see the formation of the ecclesia in the first century was based upon God's revelation of his word. It's interesting, we tend to imagine that the preaching that was done was done by the apostles who were sent out and just spoke the things that they remembered Jesus having said, or that they had heard Jesus say, or that they remembered that Jesus had done. And of course, it wasn't like that at all, brothers and sisters. Let's come to John and chapter 14. Because our memories are really terrible things, aren't they? I mean, just, just awful. Really, our memories, and you might pride yourself on your excellent memory, in which case, that's great for you. Um, I don't, because I haven't got a good memory. 
but it's interesting, there was a study done over in America. Um, the day of 9-11, when the Twin Towers came down, a psychology professor had, had a class of first years, and he got them all to write down what they had done that day. Because it's an incredibly sort of memorable event, isn't it? And you tend to say, I remember where I was, or I remember what I was doing when I heard that. Then two years later, the first years were now third years, and the ones that were left, he got them to write down again, what do you remember about that day? And for the majority of them, it was nothing like. Despite the fact that they had this massive event to sort of hold their memories to, their days didn't resemble, or their memories of that day didn't resemble what they had actually written down in the slightest. Our memories are not to be trusted, and God didn't trust to the memories of these people. John chapter 14 and verse 25. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, the Advocate, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. They weren't going to be left to rely on their own remembrances, their own memories of the acts of Jesus. And we can carry on through this sort of exhortation that Jesus gives to see the same thing comes out again and again. John chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. They were going to be there, recognised as eyewitnesses, speaking the words of the Spirit. He would testify. John chapter 16 and verse 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall be and he will show you things to come. They were going to be told what to say. God wasn't going to leave the building of his ecclesia to chance. To the chance remembrances of the apostles of Christ. The words of preaching, the words of bearing witness would be guided by the Spirit. They were the prophets of God. Come back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. And just have a look at verse 16. Where the Apostle Paul says, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And it's just like what we read about Jeremiah, isn't it? Who tried to clamp his mouth shut and said, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I had to speak the word of God. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing here. Though I preach the gospel, I've got nothing to do. I can't boast because I go out and preach. It's not something that I can stand up and say, aren't I great because I'm preaching? Because I've got to do it. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
Verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. That I abuse not my power in the gospel. For <coughs> though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Verse 22 says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I am made all things to all men. The Spirit drove him to preach and it gave him the words to do it in the appropriate way. The preacher, brothers and sisters, as we would expect, was guided by the Spirit. And we're not surprised, are we? It's not a shock. We know Romans chapter 10 tells us in verse 17, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? Verse 16 says, They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The preaching that was done, was done by the guidance of the Spirit to establish the Ecclesia and to set it up. But the spoken word wasn't the end. The spoken word wasn't it. Because then once the apostles had gone and once the Spirit gifts had gone, then it would be up to people's memory. God had something else in mind. And again, it was based on an Old Testament model. Just come to Deuteronomy in chapter 31. We know that Deuteronomy was a spoken revelation from God. Moses stood up and he spoke to the people. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 31 tells us that. Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel. It's the same throughout Deuteronomy. It is Moses' speech to the children of Israel. And it says in verse 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and unto all the elders of Israel. And if you have a look at verse 26 of Deuteronomy 31, Moses commands the Levites and says, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark. The revised version, by the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Moses received Deuteronomy. He spoke those words. He had those words written down. And he then, it says, 
delivered them to the priests, the sons of Levi, who placed them by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. And we've seen in the New Testament that the words of God were spoken. God revealed his will through the words of his prophets. But just come to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Because we will see very similar language used as what we saw in Deuteronomy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 says, the Apostle Paul says, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the Apostle Paul says, I was given it and then I delivered it to you, just like Moses did. And you'll note the position of the scroll of the law beside the ark. The place of the body of the ecclesia of Christ besides the ark. And this idea of receiving and delivering is, is a theme throughout the New Testament. Come back to chapter 11 of 1st of Corinthians and verse 23. Actually, just, just look at verse 2 to begin with and then verse 23. The Apostle Paul says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances, or the traditions, or the commandments, as I delivered them to you. So the Apostle Paul is able to say, in 1 Corinthians 11, there was a written record of the words of God, which was delivered to you, which you have kept. And just look at verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Moses received the law and delivered it to the priests. And the Apostle Paul is making that same claim for himself and for his writings. That they were received of God and that they were delivered to the ecclesia. And it gives us this picture, doesn't it, of the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't his words. It wasn't his message. It wasn't his preaching. He was given those words to write down. It's interesting, in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about my gospel, which was delivered. He makes two references to my gospel. Romans 2 verse 16 and Romans 16 verse 25 but just have a quick look at 2nd of Timothy in chapter 2. References to my gospel might lead us to think that Paul was taking some ownership of the message. But that's not the case. 2nd of Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Remember says 2nd of Timothy 2 verse 8, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. And there is this equation with the my gospel, which Paul has preached, and the word of God. Paul 
never claims that the ideas or the thoughts or the words of these letters were his. We read the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. Let's go there. Because this introduction, this preface to the Gospel of Luke gives us a really clear picture of this process that we have seen. That the Word of God was spoken by the prophets, but then written down and delivered to the Ecclesia as a permanent record of His will. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, the same expression, the same idea of this deliverance, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. That idea of ministers of the Word is, is, is a really important one. Just come to Luke chapter 4 and have a look at verse 22. Jesus has read for them Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 verses 18 and 19 and in verse 20 he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him the minister was the one in the synagogue who spoke the words of God from the Old Testament he was the one who taught the people the words of God. And on this occasion he had delivered the book to Jesus. That Jesus might read from it. And then Jesus gives the book back to the minister. It's the same word as here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 2. An attendant to the word. And now come to Acts chapter 13. Um, keep something in Luke, we'll be going back to Luke chapter 1, but Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. Having sort of understood what the, the role of this minister was, he was the one who spoke the words of God in the synagogue, and he was also the one who led the learning, the memorization of the word of God. Just look at Acts 13 and verse 5. When they're at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John, John Mark, to their minister. It's the same word as the word used in Luke 1 and Luke 4, the minister of the word. And so what we have then is a picture of the apostles who go out and who preach, given the words to preach. But then there was some sort of formal learning and teaching process whereby they memorised the words of God that had been preached to them. And Acts 13 verse 5 tells us that the job, that job was given to John Mark, who having been a minister in the synagogue, was able then, directed by the Spirit, to teach the people the words that they needed. And it was these ministers of the Word who had delivered their message to Luke, who had been teaching the people the gospel given by the Spirit. 
Back in Luke chapter 1, at the end of that little section that we read of verse 4, Luke says that he's written these things, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The revised version margin has, which thou wast taught by word of mouth. It was these ministers, these attendants on the word, who taught the people the gospel. Theophilus had been through this process. The picture we have of the building of the early ecclesia is of prophets who found out, inspired to preach the word, which was then memorised by the new members of the faith, led by the ministers of the word. But we've already said, people's memories, is people's memories are faulty. And so verse 3 of Luke chapter 1 tells us, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus. The expansion of the ecclesia meant that a more permanent record was needed. And so Luke tells us, that it seemed good to him. He recognised the need. But he didn't do it under his own steam. He had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. That phrase, the very first, should be translated from above. Look at Matthew 27, verse 51, which talks about the rending of the veil in the temple. From the top to the bottom. We could look at James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above. James chapter 3 verses 15 and 17. The wisdom that is from above. All examples of this word being used. Luke is telling us that he was inspired to write this down. That having there having been this spoken memorization of the words of God which were delivered to the attendance on the word by the Spirit, there was now a need for a writing down of those words. Directed by the Spirit, given to Luke from above. Why would God take less care over the permanent written record of his word than we have seen he has done with the spoken message which he sent the apostles and the prophets out with. Having therefore, or moving on therefore, from the spoken message to a written record, there was need for some form of confirmation. The apostles, we are told, had signs. In fact, if we're in Luke 1, just look back at Mark chapter 16. Verse 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. There was confirmation of what they were saying, that it was from God, because they were doing miracles as well. But books don't do miracles like that. 
So there needed to be some form of confirmation for the early ecclesias that these were the written words of God. It was also the case, we could look at 2nd of Thessalonians chapter 2, and we won't, that there were also false records being written. 2nd of Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul is telling them to ignore the forgeries that were done in his name. People were writing things which weren't inspired and passing them off as the words of the Apostles. So there was a need for some form of authentication. And if you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that tells us that this was in fact the case. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, verse 8 says, To one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Again, this idea of prophecy is put at the top of the list. But in verse 10 it says, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits. So there was given a spirit gift which enabled the early ecclesias to say, this bit of writing was inspired, this bit of writing wasn't. This gospel from Luke was inspired. This other one, we can just do away with. And so we can see that God is giving his ecclesia the means to form its own set of books. It didn't need a council 300 years later to sit down and say these are the books for the New Testament. These are the word of God. Because the ecclesias were given the means to do that. The spirit would guide them. A spirit gift was provided to enable the ecclesias to adjudicate whether a letter was inspired or not. Just have a look at 1 John chapter 4. First of John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. By the time of the first epistle of John, chapter 4, many false prophets were in existence. And so there was a need for this ability to judge, and God gave it to the ecclesias. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, don't turn there, says, I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. So the, the, the ecclesia in Ephesus had done this. They had received people who claimed to be apostles, who claimed to be speaking the word of God, who possibly claimed to have written down the word of God, and they looked at them and said, no, you're not. You're making it up. And they were able to ignore them because of that. The books that form the New Testament were compiled very early 
in the history of the Ecclesia. We obviously don't have dates in the text. The Apostle Paul didn't write a date at the top of his letters. But we can piece together through evidence that we gain from the letters that matches to what we are told about the events in the Acts of the Apostles, the dating for many of the letters that we have. One of, one of the most obvious ones we're going to look at is 1st of Thessalonians. Let's have a look at 1st of Thessalonians in chapter 3. So in 1st of Thessalonians chapter 3 we give in a little biographical detail by the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy our brother and minister of God and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So the Apostle Paul moves on. Timothy stays to ascertain the health of the Ecclesia. Paul goes to Athens and then he goes on to Corinth. We know this from Acts chapter 17, which we aren't going to look at, but Acts chapter 17 tells us that that's where Paul went. And then in Acts 18 verse 1, he's gone to Corinth. Having received word from Timothy, Paul then writes 1st of Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 6 of 1st Thessalonians. But now, when Timothy came from you to us and brought us good tidings of your faith, and love, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul has gone off, Timothy has been left behind. Timothy then follows and gives his report concerning the Thessalonians, and Paul writes it down. Paul is inspired to write this letter to them, encouraging them, Timothy having left. We can see how it fits into Acts, and we can say with certainty that somewhere between AD 50 and AD 52, the Apostle Paul wrote 1st of Thessalonians. Now you will find a number of people, depending on which books you read, who will tell you that Thessalonians, 1st of Thessalonians, probably 2nd of Thessalonians, almost certainly not, was not written by the Apostle Paul. The arguments they give for this are, well, highly subjective, let's put it that way. People think that people have to write in exactly the same way for whatever circumstance and in whatever event they are writing. And so they see stylistic differences between 2nd Thessalonians and 1st Thessalonians and say, well, alright, one person wrote one. But the Apostle Paul couldn't have written the other one. First off, that's not how people write. People write differently depending on what they're writing about. Second off, this was all given by the Spirit. We have already seen in 1 Corinthians 9 that the Spirit was able to ensure that Paul was all things to all men. We should not then fall into the trap of thinking that because people think 2 Thessalonians doesn't sound like 1 Thessalonians, that it wasn't written by the Apostle Paul. And if they say that, that gives them the license to say that it was written 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years later, into the 2nd century AD. We can place 
Second Thessalonians, very close to the writing of First Thessalonians, and say that the two of them were probably written before AD 55, before Paul sort of moves on with his journeys. And why this is particularly interesting for us, first off, it gives us a letter, an inspired letter written to an ecclesia by AD 50. The canon of the New Testament was being formed. But even more interesting than that, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do the others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober. And it is a stirring exhortation for us, brothers and sisters, which was taken from Luke chapter 21. Reference after reference is made. The sudden destruction, the drunkenness, the escaping. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34 and on a couple of verses. The lessons are drawn from that passage. And it tells us that by AD 55, certainly, Luke had written his gospel, that it was accepted as the word of God, and that the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit, could quote that Gospel and have his readers recognise it and accept it. While we're fairly close by, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. First of Timothy, um, written a bit later on, by AD 60 almost certainly. Eight, uh, First of Timothy 5 and verse 18 says, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And the labourer is worthy of his reward. That is Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. And by the time of writing to 1st of Timothy, Timothy would have had a copy of Luke, which he would have known and read, and he would have recognised the quotation that has come from it in 1st of Timothy, chapter 5 and verse 18. The scripture says you won't muzzle your ox, and Timothy knows, that's Deuteronomy 25. And he knows that the next passage is Luke chapter 10, or has Luke available so that he can check it. The canon of the New Testament was being formed and was formed very early on. <coughs> and it was used and quoted and referred to by the apostles in their preaching and in their writing, guided by the Spirit. 
God did not leave his ecclesia to grow by chance. He didn't leave his ecclesia to grow based on the, the memories and rememberings of a group of people who had been with Jesus 20 years before. God gave his ecclesia his spoken word, which was replaced by his written word. And he gave the ecclesia the means to decide that through his spirit. It wasn't based upon the teaching or the thought of church councils hundreds of years later. The New Testament tells us how it was formed and how it was compiled. There is a fascinating set of references to public reading in the New Testament. You could look at Colossians 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to show <coughs> that they were encouraged to read these out just like the Jews were doing with the Old Testament in the synagogue. The individual works were to be treated as teaching aids alongside the Old Testament. So by the first decade or two after the death of Christ, there was enough material to form a body of writing that will be read aloud at the meeting, just as we do. There are passages which talk about the Word of God increasing which, based on the Greek and the way it's used elsewhere, seem to only be a reference to the fact that people were writing the Word of God down and that body of writing was growing. Acts chapter 13, verse 15 says that. We can be sure, brothers and sisters, based on the testimony of the New Testament itself that God cared for his ecclesia in providing for them a written record of the life of his son and the unveiling of his purpose a written record of his mind concerning the issues and difficulties which they faced an inspired record of how he wished them to grow. We've seen how this was a progressive revelation, just as with the Old Testament. It grew and built. It centered on the first century prophets and then flowered in the form of inspired writings, which were authenticated by the Spirit and accepted into the Ecclesia at a very early date and were available to be referenced by the apostles in their writings. These writings are testified to within the New Testament itself. And suppliers with all the confidence we need that the books that we have on our laps are indeed the inspired word of God. <clears throat>